Turn, if you would, to the 10th chapter of the book of Proverbs. I mentioned last week that after 15 lessons, we finally finished the introduction. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs uh, discuss wisdom, they discuss pursuing wisdom, they discuss pursuing folly, the opposite of pursuing wisdom, and starting in chapter 10, until you get to about chapter 29 or 30, you have what most people think about when you mention the book of Proverbs, which are the individual Proverbs, these nuggets of wisdom that Solomon collected because he felt that these were things that you need to know as you pursued wisdom in your life. The problem that I had, that I wrestled with all week, is how to teach these things. Um, before, when I have taught it, I have done topical lessons where you pick a particular topic and then you follow it as it goes throughout the book of Proverbs. And that actually is the most logical way of doing it. And if I were a logical person, I would have done that. Uh, the worst way of doing it, probably, is going verse by verse. So that's what we're going to do. Um, sort of. I'm going to force myself to make it through a chapter. What that means is that some of them we will have discussion about. Some of them we'll just kind of read and comment on in passing. But if there's one in particular that really jumps out at you, like what in the world does that mean, well, we'll let somebody else answer that one. Oh, wait. So we're going to start in chapter 10 dealing with the individual Proverbs. The interesting thing is, is in one sense, it's almost a random collection. You know, here's a proverb, here's a proverb, here's a proverb, there's a proverb. And to try to force it into a pattern is almost too difficult. But on the other hand, there is a unity in wisdom itself. There is a unity that all of wisdom interacts with each other. It's like I tell my children repeatedly, all of life is connected. You can't go over here and fall into sin over here and not have an effect in some other area of your life. All of life is ultimately connected. So there are connections. There are connections between the different Proverbs. And so we'll explore some of those as we start working through the Proverbs. Chapter 10, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. That kind of makes it easy to discuss who wrote it. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. Lazy hands make a, poor, a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. He begins with the discussion of the wise son and the foolish son. Now, for people our age, this is oftentimes an exceptionally difficult passage. If you are fortunate to have a wise son, you go, 
life is good. If you are unfortunate to have a foolish son, you can look at that and go, yeah, that's true. That's true as I look at young people, as I look at people who have made choices that are following the path of foolishness. Now, as we pointed out last week, as we worked through these Proverbs, my first goal would be that we apply them to ourselves. It is so much easier to point the finger at somebody else and say, oh, that person over there obviously is a fool and needs to hear these passages. Well, every morning when I look in the mirror, I have a tendency to say that person has a certain amount of foolishness running through them. A wise son makes his joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. As he begins, he actually has begun like he has begun numerous other sections in the book of Proverbs, which is addressing the son, saying, Son, if you do this, it will bring joy to your father. It isn't necessarily meant to be looking backwards and saying, This is the result. It is to look forward and say, Son, if you do these things, it will be a joy to your father, and if you don't do these things, you will bring grief to your mother. Once again, as I said earlier, and I'm going to say repeatedly, all of life is interconnected. We live in an age that is convinced that we are autonomous individuals. And I can do my own thing, and it will have no effect on anyone else. That's a lie. That is wrong. It is not true. What you do, well, forget you. What I do as a father affects my wife, my children, my children's friends, my children's spouses. What I do affects all of those people that I come in contact with. When I do that which is right, it brings joy to the community in which I operate. And when I do that which is foolish, it brings grief. We are all interconnected with each other. Don't think that you can go walking down the path of foolishness and it not have an effect on those around you. Not just those around you, but primarily those who love you. And have an intimate connection with you. Yes. The question is, could that be broad into nation? It certainly could. In fact, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about foolish leaders produce bad societies. Wise leaders produce wise societies. And at the time, I reminded ourselves... In our particular form of government, the foolish leaders are elected by foolish... Well, I won't go there. <laughs> you know where that leads. But once again, a society, a church, a family that has ceased to look at life from the perspective of wisdom and foolishness is going to be chasing, by default, foolish things. The wise son brings joy to the father, but the foolish son brings grief to his mother. We are all intimately connected. 
as we study these Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, remind yourselves, I am not an autonomous individual. You know that. I mean, I've told this class before. I've been teaching this class for, I think, 13 years. I think I started in 99. I can remember the Sunday, okay? But that's a whole different story. One of the first things I learned in this class from you, one of the first things I learned is that no matter how old you get, you still worry about your kids, you're still excited when they get jobs, you're still saddened when they lose jobs, you're worried when they get sick, you are still intimately involved. We are not autonomous individuals. And I might add, if I were going to make up a proverb applicable to our class, a wise father brings joy to a son. It works both ways. We are all intimately connected. That's a huge burden. We don't like that, by the way. We don't like the burden of thinking that I do have a responsibility to you. To you, as a class, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to attempt to follow wisdom. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. You see this form that we're going to see throughout the book of Proverbs, this contrast. This, but this, and something else. And it's a very common form in the book of Proverbs. There's some that we'll see today that are simply this and this. Just a reiteration of the same thing. But so much of the book of Proverbs is built up around contrast. This is the right behavior, and this is the foolish behavior. Or conversely, this is the foolish behavior, and this is the right behavior. And that's what we see here. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value. Wait a minute. If I go and earn a million dollars... Or if I rob a bank and get a million dollars, at the end of the day, don't I have a million dollars in my pocket? And in fact, if I steal the million dollars, I probably don't have to pay income tax on it. So I probably actually have more money than if I earn the million dollars, right? Isn't that logic? So how can it say that ill-gotten gain, ill-gotten treasure has no value? Well, we need to understand this as we work our way through the book of Proverbs. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about wealth. We're going to talk about prosperity. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about these things. Like it or not, money is an integral part of our everyday life. Ask somebody who doesn't have any. Money is an integral part of everyday life. But it is not the ultimate part of our everyday life. It should not be that which is the end for which we live our lives. Because how we get the wealth, how we get the prosperity, how we get the money is just as important as the quantity of money that we obtain. Ill-gotten treasure is ultimately of no value to us at all. 
We're going to talk in just a few verses here that God promises wealth. And we're going to talk about what that wealth means. He promises wealth as the end result of a righteous life. But it's the end result of a righteous life. Obtaining the treasure by illicit or immoral means doesn't bring value to our lives, ultimately. Ultimately, what brings value to our lives is righteousness. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. Ultimately, the rich man, in Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus and all of this stuff, the rich man went to hell and said, please let me talk to my brothers so they don't come here too. He was expecting his wealth to be his salvation. And ultimately, it couldn't do that. Because wealth is not a good God. Never has been, never will be. Yet, it's a very popular one. Yes. His wasn't ill-gotten. We don't really know that. Okay? That's not the point of the parable. You are right. It is not the point of the parable how he got his money. Obviously, though, he was not living a life of righteousness because he wouldn't have ended up in the wrong place. You are right. I'm reading something into the story. But I don't think it's too far off. Hmm. Wealth is an exceptionally popular god. It is a god in our society today. It has been a god in every society that has ever existed. Why is that? Well, it allows you to um, have power over others. It allows you to have ease from the problems of the world, so we think. It brings its own set of problems, though, as we learn elsewhere in the Scripture. Money itself, ill-gotten treasure, cannot be our salvation. Now, what does it mean, though, ill-gotten treasure, to address the question? Obviously, if I go rob a bank, and you know why people rob banks? That's where the money is. They ask a famous bank robber, why do you rob banks? And he goes, duh, that's where the money is. Obviously, if you go rob the bank, it's ill-gotten gain. But I believe we can broaden it to any attaining of wealth apart from a pursuit of righteousness and apart from a pursuit of the things of God is chasing after the wrong things. It may be perfectly legal. It may be perfectly legal in the eyes of the state. But you know, God's not going to send people to heaven or hell based on the laws of the state of Texas, great as they might be. That is not the criteria. But righteousness delivers from death. Ultimately, ultimately, it is righteousness that allows us to enter the presence of a holy God. Now, I will reiterate at this point what I actually reiterated last week, and we will say over and over again. 
we who have been in the church long enough, we who have studied the New Testament, who have looked at the scriptures in its entirety, know that there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after good. There is no one who does what is right. Apart from the grace and benevolence of God working in our lives. It is Christ's righteousness in us that allows us to enter the presence of a holy God. But it is Christ's righteousness in us that spurs us, that drives us to live a life of righteousness in this world today, to make right decisions, to live rightly in front of God and in front of our fellow human beings. Righteousness brings salvation, but it is not a righteousness that is intrinsic to us, but it is a righteousness that is given to us through the life and death of Jesus Christ. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. <sighs> At this point, we could have a discussion. Has any righteous person ever starved to death? Hmm, I'm not sure we want to answer that question. We might not like the answer. What we are dealing with here is the idea of desires and cravings and needs. And what the proverb is telling us is that the cravings and the desires and the needs of the righteous will be fulfilled. And the cravings and etc. of the wicked will be left. They will not be fulfilled. He thwarts the craving of the wicked. Notice the distinction. When we're dealing with the righteous, we're dealing with basic human needs. We know what those are. What are they? There's a nice New Testament verse about this. If you have food, if you have clothing, be content. Okay? Be content. I, I, at the risk of stating the obvious, most of us have been at that, that place for a long time. Okay? Most of us. Cravings, on the other hand, are insatiable. They go on forever. There is no end to them. I mean, you know this. Sin does not, cannot, will not satisfy. What does sin produce in us? That feeling that, ah, I am content? No. All it does is flame the craving for the next sin. We see that in our society today. You know, if you go read a book, say, about pornography and the effects of pornography on our society. They can map, even in the secular world, you can map the downward spiral of you begin here and before you know it, it is an insatiable craving. Now, the thing that I find is fascinating as I read articles and books about the effects of pornography and etc. is that as you go down this path, 
what you lose as a male is the desire for a real female because real females don't ever match up to the fantasies of the cravings that you had. So not only does the craving lead you to despair, it leads you to reject what God has provided to meet your God-given need. We saw this in chapter 5. The cravings of the wicked will not be fulfilled, but the righteous, their needs will be met. Now, to some people, myself included, that does start raising lots of questions. Because we probably can think throughout history of righteous people who didn't have their needs met. But once again, for those who are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, ultimately, ultimately, their needs are going to be met. Ultimately, there is a feast at the end of this life's journey. Ultimately, they're going to be met. We know that we live in a life that is turbulent, that is full of problems, that is full of issues. We know that. But ultimately, the needs and the desires of the righteous will be met, and the cravings of the wicked will only bring despair to them. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. We actually had a lesson early on about one of those characters that is repeatedly shown in the book of Proverbs, the good old-fashioned sluggard, the person who is lazy. And that's what we're dealing with right here. Here, Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. And at this point, it's as good as any to discuss the idea of wealth. I actually liked what one commentator said. In an agrarian subsistence farming society, such as most of the people would be in when this is being written and discussed, wealth means having food on the table, having a family that is taken care of, and having something to pass on to your children. It does not mean the accumulation of tons of gold in the other room. Now, we know for a fact that Solomon himself had the tons of gold in the other room. We know that. But Solomon was not the typical average person living in the Middle East at this time. To the average normal person, having food on the table, a roof over the head, a family that is taken care of, and something to pass on to the next generation, is a wealthy person. Now, if you define wealth as more, okay, just more, whatever I have now, wealth is more then you're always going to be miserable. You're always going to be miserable. And you know what? That's how we define it today. They do a survey. You go do a survey of millionaires. 
Do you consider yourself wealthy? No. How much more do you need to consider yourself wealthy? And it's about a million bucks more. Wherever you are, wherever you are, it's more. And that's how we define wealth. You cannot have contentment if you're always going to define wealth as more. And God doesn't always promise you more of whatever it is. The other thing that is fascinating is, once again, they do surveys. And I'm going to go and I'm going to take all of you and I'm going to give you a job and we're all going to make a good salary, okay? I'm going to pay each and every one of you $100,000 a year. In fact, I'm going to pay everyone in the country $100,000 a year. And most people wouldn't be happy. Why? They're quite content with their neighbor making 100 as long as they make 200 What they have found is that people are happier when they're making more than the people next door to them. Whatever the number is. Their idea of wealth is defined by that which is greater than some other group of people. Nobody wants to live where everybody's wealthy. Now, I know that that doesn't exist in spite of what certain people want to tell you, okay? We live in a world that has certain economic realities, but we're not going there. He's going there. <laughs> Go ahead. The bigger boat theory. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked with a guy for years, you know, a peer. So I don't know what he made, but it's probably comparable to what I made. And, you know, he, he, he was constantly reading yachting magazines. You know, we're talking, you know, starting boats at $10 million. And I'm going, why are you? He had, anyway, he had aspirations. What is the point of all of this? We're going to see in the book of Proverbs, we're going to see in the book of Proverbs these ideas of wealth. Getting wealth. Diligent hands bring wealth. If you define wealth as just more, 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 wait until we get to chapter 30 and we see the six things that say never say enough. And there's one of them, okay? More, more, more. I've got to have more. You will never be content. You will never be grateful for that which God has given you. You are not going to be happy. But when we learn contentment, and we learn that food on the table, roof over the head, etc., relationships that are intact, is wealth, then we can live a righteous and happy life. But whatever definition of wealth you use, the reality is, in this fallen world in which we live, that takes work. It takes work. Anybody want to argue that point for a while? Diligent hands are necessary to accomplish the things that God would have us to accomplish in this life. It's as simple as that. 
work itself is not is not a result of the fall. Let me repeat that. Work in and of itself is not a result of the fall. Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall were given work to do. We as human beings are made to work. Now, this may be work outside the home. This may be work inside the home. This may be work at the local elementary school doing mentoring. Whatever it is, we are put in this world to do things for God. And that requires diligence. And the opposite of diligence is laziness, and laziness will not accomplish anything. Lazy hands make a man poor. And poor is the opposite of what we were talking about in wealth. It is not being able to meet your basic needs. It is not being able to provide for those that you are responsible for. It is not doing what God would have you to do. Yes? talking about his grandfather and not having any money but being a rich man because of the relationships that were built up. But once again, that takes effort. It does. Whatever it is that you're going to accomplish for good in this world takes effort. When we talked, however many weeks ago it was, about the sluggard, we talked briefly about what the medievals used to call the seven deadly sins. And, you know, pride, lust, avarice, whatever they were. And I mentioned at the time that most people, when putting them in an order of some sort, will usually put pride at the top. And I could actually believe that. You know, we talk about Satan's pride, wanting to be like God, bringing about the fall. Okay? But there were some that actually put sloth, laziness, at the top of the list. And the reason they did it was irregardless of what other problems, other sins you have in your life, if you are lazy, if you are slothful, you're not going to deal with the other ones. In fact, it prohibits you. It stands in the way of you dealing with the problems in your life. You may have relational problems. You may have financial problems. You may have fill in the blank with your favorite, well, it doesn't make sense, does it? Your favorite problem. <laughs> Whatever it is, sitting in a chair doing nothing is not going to solve that problem. Now, but let me put a caveat in there. Sitting in a chair earnestly praying to God is not doing nothing. Shall I repeat that? Sitting in a chair, earnestly praying to God is not doing nothing. 
That is a work in and of itself. But you know, you've seen those who just don't do anything. You know, I'd love to work on my relationship, but my favorite TV show's on. And after that, my second favorite TV show's on. And after that, my third favorite one's on. And I couldn't miss those. And that's how it just falls into place. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son. But he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Is there anything inherently wrong with sleeping? No. There is nothing inherently wrong with sleeping. Sleeping is good for you. I wouldn't know, but I've been told that it's good for you. I mentioned to someone earlier that my daughter called me at 1 o'clock this morning. She was locked out of the house. <laughs> now, I suspect she had just walked out the door and come back in, and the door locked behind her, but whatever. So we don't sleep around our house. <laughs> but I've been told it's a good thing. There is nothing inherently wrong with sleeping. The book of Proverbs, in fact, the Bible in general, is, is written in the context of an, of an agrarian society. And in a, an agrarian society, there are seasons. You know, we wonder in Texas whether there's seasons or not. Sometimes there pretends to be, but, you know, what was it, Wednesday? My daughter in Colorado called, and they were having a snow day, and it was 85 here. <laughs> Go figure. But there are seasons. There are seasons. There's a season to plant. There's a season to tend to the crops, and there is a, a season to harvest the crops. And in a particular season, there are particular activities that you are supposed to do. And if you don't do them in that particular season, they don't just get delayed, they don't get done. You don't say, well, the crop's out there and it's ready to harvest, but you know, my favorite TV show's on. I'll do it next week. No, next week's going to be too late because the season of harvesting is right now. That's why in an agrarian community, come harvest time, it is sunup to sundown, you are working your buns off because that's the season. I always remember the first time I read the Little House on the Prairie series with some of my younger kids. The very first book is Little House in the Big Woods. The whole book, I don't know if you've read it, the whole book is essentially gathering enough food to make it through the winter. You're collecting the crops, you're canning, you're hunting and salting the meat, you're preparing for a different season. And in the winter season, there are tasks that are appropriate to that. Okay? But there's not, it's, it's different. Now, life has its seasons. We could have a long, long, lengthy discussion about the different seasons of life. And it would be fascinating. Love to do it. But let's suffice it to say that life has its seasons. There are seasons when you are supposed to be working your buns off. There really are. Whether you're starting a business, 
whether you are raising young kids in a family, you are working your buns off. There are seasons when you are preparing for that part of your life, where you're in school, where you're studying, where you're learning skills that will be necessary for the rest of your life, and you should be working your buns off learning those skills. There are seasons when you are the elder statesman and you are addressing issues, but you're not working your buns off physically. It changes. The context of the work changes. What is needed changes. Your abilities change. And that's all okay. That is the way God made it. God didn't make seasons just to confuse us. That's the fabric of the universe. There are seasons to rest. There are seasons to work. What is this saying? He who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. When you are not doing what is required for the particular season that you're in, you're being a disgrace. Whatever that season is, you know, I have said for years that I'm not sure, ultimately, that retirement is a biblical concept. Now, you may stop your job. You can stop that, okay? That's fine. But the idea that I'm going to spend this point of my life to the end doing nothing except what I want to do, I have a little trouble, biblically, finding that place. What you do may change. It will change. Our bodies change. We slow down. What you do may change. But doing something is necessary throughout life. Yes? Yeah. And whether it pays or not also isn't the relevant factor. It may be. I mean, you... You may need to make money, all your, I, whatever. You know, I'm going to have kids in college until I'm 66. <laughs> I'm doomed. <laughs> but that's okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> the diligent person does what is necessary in the season of life, in the season of the year in which they exist. They acknowledge the seasons. They recognize the seasons. They don't dread the seasons. They don't hate the seasons. They do what needs to be done where they are in the season that they are in. And the foolish son says no. Sleep is great and wonderful. But if the crop is ready to be harvested. It's not going to wait a week or a month until you decide to get lazy, to, to get out of the bed and go do it. It needs to be done. Now I might add, the implication here obviously is that this son is not just lazy during harvest. He's lazy the other times too. It just becomes more evident, more clear, more visible during harvest time, when the foolish son is still lying in bed. There's a character quality that he has 
that prevents him from doing what needs to be done. Gosh, we've made it through four verses, five verses. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. It would be interesting to have a show of hands of how many of you know a chattering fool, but we won't do that because you might be... No, I won't say that. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, verse 6. Blessings crown the head of the righteous. We see throughout Scripture blessings and curses. Those are the options. Blessings and curses. Blessed is the man who does this. Curses is the man who does this. Those are the options. Following after the things of God and receiving the blessing of God. Following after the things of this world and forfeiting that blessing and, in fact, receiving the curse, the problem associated with that. Blessings crown the head of the righteous. You know the picture, right? The picture is the winner of the event gets the crown. You see this throughout the New Testament because the time we get to the New Testament, we are steeped in, say, the Greek idea of the race. Paul talks about the race. And the winner of the race gets not a billion dollars. It's kind of fascinating when you think about it. You go run in the ancient uh, Olympic Games in Greece, and the winner gets a crown of ivy or something. Huh? A wreath around his head. And you go, is that all you get? But you know, that's what they wanted. They wanted the acclaim. They wanted the blessing of the community that they had done excellence, that they had won the race. Now, who's giving out crowns ultimately? This is easy. God. Ultimately, God is giving out the crowns. Blessings crown the head of the righteous. Do you see that? Do you see that picture? What is it that would drive that Olympic athlete to run, to train, to discipline his body in order to get that piece of foliage to put on his head? What is it that drives them? The acclaim of the community. What is it that is to drive us to live righteous lives? The acclaim of some TV personality? The acclaim of the pagan down the street? Or the acclaim of God? That is what drives us. That is what ought to drive us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. That ultimately, he is giving the crown. And ultimately, that's all that matters. And that's faith. It takes faith 
to see that. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. Huh. What does that mean? Violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. There's a note down there that an alternate translation of it says, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. In this chapter, we're going to see several verses about the tongue, the mouth, and what comes out of it. The fact that good things are supposed to come out of it, bad things often do come out of it. Now, we're obviously not going to make it to that today, but we'll get to that next week. But the righteous is getting the crown. What is the connection between the righteous getting the crown and violence coming out of or overwhelming the mouth of the wicked? Somehow the wicked's voice is producing, is causing, and encouraging violent behavior. Violent behavior that is counter to, obviously, the will of God. Behavior that leads themselves astray, that brings harm on them, and brings harm on their neighbor, and harm on those associated with it. Remember back to chapter 1, where the foolish person says to the simple, come with us, let's go do violence against somebody just for the fun of it. That's a loose translation, but not that loose. Let's go mess somebody up just for the fun of it. And it says what that person doesn't realize, that the only trap that is being set is a trap for themselves. The righteous, living lives of contentment with what God has provided, doing that which God has ordained for them to do, will live their lives and will receive the crown. The violent person, the wicked person, is always plotting evil, wickedness, talking about it, doing it. It's coming upon them. They're causing it. And the end result is more violence. You can envision, if you will, heaven as a place of eternal contentment. Eternally having all of our needs met by a gracious and loving God. And in the same moment, you can envision hell as a place of eternal violence. There is no contentment. There is nothing but violence against the person and against each other. There is none of the satisfaction of receiving that which God is offering to those who righteously follow him. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing. If you went and looked through history at the most famous people in history, however you make that determination, okay? However you want to make the determination of the most famous people in history, who's going to be remembered and who's not? Well, 
Unfortunately, we, with our human memories, often remember very violent people. We do. Okay? Adolf Hitler's at the top of being somewhere on the list of famous people. Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, all these famous people who were, shall we say, violent, wicked, etc. So, does this not work? The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Question. What good does it do Adolf Hitler that textbooks still talk about him today? What good does it do to him that people still remember the atrocities that he committed? Answer, it doesn't do him a bit of good. That memory and its effects on him is pure, unadulterated rot, to use the word out of the passage. The name of the wicked will rot. Ultimately, ultimately, the righteous will be remembered in blessing and the wicked will be remembered as wicked. Ultimately, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he exists and that it's always better to do things his way. You can sit here and say, and people do this, by the way, I want to be remembered. So I grab a gun and I run into a schoolhouse and I start shooting people. And you know what? I make the evening news. Aren't I important? I become a celebrity. <gasps> but ultimately, there is no blessing associated with that. Ultimately, all there is is rottenness that will deal with my soul and all of those who follow in my footpath, my footsteps. The generations who follow the righteous will remember the righteous well. The generations who follow the wicked will produce more rottenness. Well, we made it through seven verses. At this, week, at this rate, we will be working through the book of Proverbs until my last kid graduates from college. <laughs> so we may have to think, rethink this plan. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a righteous God. Thank you that you give us that righteousness through the life and death of your Son. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would pursue that righteousness in our everyday life, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.